Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Good morning, Ariadne. It's time to wake up. It is 8 a.m. on Saturday, October 1st, 2050. The high today will be 15 degrees. An extreme rainfall warning is in place. A reminder that a grocery order is scheduled for 10 a.m. Would you like to add your birthday meal request now or set a reminder for later? I don't know what to choose. We normally only get meat once a week. But then mom says that birthday steak should be real steak. You know, like, not that lab-grown stuff. But then she said I can have anything I wanted. Maybe I should have salmon. We never get salmon. Your species alert today includes four extinctions. Would you like a virtual reality tour? I'm meteorologist Johanna Wagstaff, and this is 2050 Degrees of Change, a CBC Vancouver podcast exploring how climate change will shape our province and the way we live in the year 2050. In our last episode, we explored how a shifting climate will affect our snow, ice, waterways, and ocean by mid-century. And that has a direct link to what we eat. Remember how much our seafood industry has transformed in 2050? Salmon populations have crashed, along with herring. BC's most prosperous fishing is Pacific sardines, which were once caught off the coast of California. Like many species, sardines have shifted north in search of cooler waters. On land, climate change has brought challenges and some opportunities. Farmers have always had to deal with uncertainty and tough years. Too much water or too little can be the difference between boom or bust. And in 2050, these kinds of challenges have only increased. California is no longer the agricultural hub of North America. It simply doesn't have the water resources to sustain massive almond and avocado plantations. Eating locally and seasonally isn't just something to do if you like farmer's markets. It's the norm, because out-of-season produce is way too expensive. You can still find asparagus in October, but it costs $16. Strawberries in January are up to $15 for a pint. Here on Canada's southwest coast, warmer seasons mean BC in 2050 has a longer growing period. But farmers are still facing challenges. In many cases, challenges they're already facing today. As early as April 15th, as late as May 5. It just depends Depends on the the year. year. For us out here, it's moisture. It's not that it's too cold or too warm or anything like that. It's totally based on the fields being dried up and us being able to work the land. Water is definitely a big challenge out here on Westham. Is there ever not enough or is that not an issue at this point? Like it's always tempered enough? Yes, 
No, yeah, so you have it both ways. You either have uh, too much water uh, in the winter months and then not enough in the summer. So there's been times where we've lost our boots and got the truck and tractor stuck in, in the fall. Lydia Rael is an organic farmer. She runs Cropthorne Farms on Westham Island in Richmond. And as she shows us around, her nine-month-old Freya rides piggyback. Our producer, Polly, is on the mic. If you've never been to Westham Island, here's the thing you need to know. It's very fertile land, but it's also low, very low. Uh, yeah, we're right at sea level. I mean, this Westham Island is, is, is diked. Farmers have always had to deal with unpredictability from year to year. Lydia grew up farming. She's now on year nine of her own small-scale vegetable farm with laying hens. But climate change will exacerbate an issue farmers in the Delta are already dealing with. Where the Fraser meets the Pacific, the salty ocean water carries up into the lower Fraser as the tides shift. It's called salt wedging. Out here, we use the Fraser River to irrigate our crops. And depending on the year, depending on the snowpack, the issue is it can become too salty. Once the snowpack um, has melted and the Fraser River um, has slowed in terms of flow, uh, then the salt water creeps up the Fraser. And so it can be July, it can be August. So we are still irrigating that time of the year. And so we have uh, salinity monitors and we're monitoring the ditch and figuring out when um, we can bring Fraser River water in and when we can't. I'll let Emily McNair take it from here. She runs the Climate Action Initiative, a group that works with the BC Agricultural Council and some of the province's 20,000 farms to help them figure out ways to adapt to climate change. What is expected with climate change uh, as the sea levels rise is that that wedge will push further up the river. Um, so the geographic extent of that salty area will change. The river levels affect um, how salty the, the water in the river is. And the big concern with climate change is the combined effect of the salt wedge pushing further up the river uh, at, at times of year when there also is a low lower flow. Um, and these two things are both expected to be shifting. So with climate change, we will have lower stream flows um, in particular sort of later in the in the summer, earlier in the fall. And then we may have with sea level rise, this, this salt wedge pushing further up the Fraser. And this affects all of the farmers that take their irrigation water from the Fraser River. Um, and they already do have to um, deal with this. Like there's already salinity issues in the lower Fraser. Uh, and the Corporation of Delta has worked with producers um, on this issue, but it is expected to become more pronounced in the future. So there's concern with the farmers that that rely on that irrigation water. That advancing salt also means advancing seas. And remember how low Westham is? I think the, one of the bigger worries is, is that our dike here on Westham Island is lower than mainland Delta. So it's going to, you know, we're going to get flooded here first. And another concern is, you know, there's not a ton of residents on Westham Island. I mean, it's a big island, you know, it's, it's agricultural land. And so my wonder is, is, you know, diking costs a lot of money. And I know that you know, the province, the municipality and, and the federal governments are trying to figure out cost shares. And my major worry is, oh, maybe in 60, 70 years, it's no to dike Westham Island to the same level as mainland Delta is going to cost too much. And, you know, let these, you know, 50 families and all this farmland just get flooded. Who knows? I mean, there's a big cost to it. So, yeah, that's that's my concern is we're, we're as low as it gets. So 
we'll see. I guess the hope is that uh, people do care and value this island enough that it, that it won't uh, be underwater. And I mean, they're going to have to figure things out. I think, yeah, all levels of government things. It's not, you know, it's it's Richmond, it's it's Delta, so um, all up the coast in the in the states. So they'll. Uh, I have faith. <laughs> but a more immediate concern is pests. In 2050, we have far fewer days below zero. In Vancouver, we'll see 60% fewer days that hit the frost mark than the late 2010s. In the Okanagan Valley, it's almost half the frost days. And while that might sound like good news if you hate the cold weather, it also means that without those sub-zero temps, winters won't be cold enough to keep pests at bay. We're a certified organic farm, and so it's in terms of pest pressure. If it's going to be warmer summers, which I think they're predicting, you know, changing the climate to be to be warmer at times or even warmer winters. Well, in the winters, pests aren't dying. They're they're going to harbor in the edges of the field, and in, in a really cold winter such as this, we're we're excited for this year because, you know, those pests might die, um, and so it's just going to be more pests. And so for conventional farmers, it might mean more spraying. For us, there are some sprays that we can use, but we don't nearly have the toolbox that conventional farms have. And and even for them, it's going to be a struggle. So that's my concern is maybe certain crops that we grow now that we struggle with because of pest issues. Well, maybe we can't be growing broccoli at all in 15, 20 years because you know the aphids come way too much. And so we might, there might just be a shift in the crops we grow. By 2050, what we grow in BC has changed. Back in 2017, some are already making the most of the shifts to warmer temperatures. Hi, my name is David Gein. I'm the owner and president of Coral Beach Farms Limited. We're a cherry producer in the North Okanagan. David's growing cherries further north and at higher latitudes than he could have done even just a few decades ago. Part of that is due to selective breeding, but part of that is due to changes we've already had in our climate. We're standing in one of his orchards, in Coldstream, near Lavington in the North Okanagan. It's March, so bare cherry trees rustle in the wind. Snow blankets the slope. In the distance, we can just see the whitecaps of the Monashi Mountains. By 2050, maybe those peaks will be more black than white. But in the meantime, David's seizing an opportunity. I've been farming since 1981, and the climate is definitely generally warmer. We are, as you know, coming off a a very cold winter, but on average, our climate is quite a bit warmer. So we have an earlier spring and later frost in the fall. So it just allows you to to, to push the envelope a little bit and go into sites that were, you know, 40 years ago, you would not have planted cherries out in the Lavington area. In fact, 40 years ago, even planting apples out of here out here would be pretty high risk. David's cherries can be harvested as late as September. And if you're a cherry fan, you know that peak cherry season is early July. Just one example of how a warmer climate can lead to a longer growing season. But David isn't just growing cherries later in the season. He's also changing where he's growing them. This farm starts at an elevation of 533 meters, and climbs up the slope another 100 meters. To put that in perspective, that's almost the same elevation as the chief in Squamish. Normally, that's a height far too cold to grow soft fruit like cherries. But even though climate change has let David carve out a niche in his industry, he says it's not all good news for cherries. Yeah, it it is really a mixed bag. We we do have the benefit that we can plant 
uh, sites that traditionally would not have been cherry suitable. We can push our harvest period later, but we also have a much more volatile and unpredictable climate. So uh, last summer, for example, we had uh, very, very warm weather in March, April, through to about the middle of May, and then it just got cold and showery and mucky, and we never really did have consistent summer weather pick up until some point late August. So that, that's, that's definitely a downside with climate change is the, the unpredictability. We seem to get more torrential downpour, thunderstorm type showers, which uh, are not our friend. So that's, that's certainly on the downside. We do have to be concerned about that. On the upside, um, as we're pushing our envelope a little further north and higher on our cherries, some of the areas in Washington and California that previously could produce cherries are finding their climate is getting too hot for them. So cherries have a, have a narrow band of suitability. If it's uh, too cold, they'll die in the winter, or they'll freeze off in the spring. If it's too hot, the cherries will be soft and poor sugar. So they have this little spectrum that they'll grow in. The cherries David grows were developed with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Denise Nielsen's lab. Her work looks at the ways climate change will affect our water resources and what that means for changing crop suitability. People say that they they can't see what's happening with climate change. But in fact, if you had been in the Okanagan Valley over the past 40 years, you would have seen a huge change already in the crops that are grown. So we have um, a Vitis vinifera wine grape industry that probably wouldn't have been supported by the climate 40 years ago. Uh, And we see, so we've seen a, a northward movement of wine grapes. We see a northward movement of sweet cherry, which are also quite tender. And in fact, the most limiting factor for those crops is minimum winter temperature. And it's the minimum winter temperatures that are really changing when we talk about global warming. And so as those minimum winter temperatures increase, then the ability to grow these much more tender crops, such as sweet cherries, peaches, wine grapes, uh, also increases. So David Gein has his uh, orchards in both further north than previously, uh, but also at higher altitude. And in fact, that's what we expect to see in the future, northward movement of uh, crops like sweet cherries and wine grapes, peaches. We might see uh, the movement upslope of some of those crops. By mid-century, BC will be facing challenges, but nowhere near what our neighbours to the south will see. We talk a lot about shifting climate envelopes when we talk about climate change, looking to areas at lower latitudes for what our future climate might hold. It's not quite as simple as taking the climate of Southern California right now and bumping it up to BC, but in some ways that is similar to what we'll experience. So while longer growing seasons and less frost may be a boom for growers in this province, it means that California will become even more arid and be more hurting for water. So will BC be able to pick up the slack? Denise isn't so sure. It's on the right track climatically, but the problem is that BC has relatively little arable land. Only 4.5% of the province is actually available for cultivation, just because we're such a mountainous province, uh, whereas California has much more land that is suitable for agriculture. 
but they also have an unreliable water supply. And another factor is that uh, temperature extremes, which is one of the things that is driving these extreme weather events, um, are likely to, to limit crops as well. So um, we often talk about these in terms of, of erratic weather rather than the sorts of extremes that climatologists talk about. But these are things that prevent a, a crop from either developing properly or maybe you might have something that a crop that um, if it's a perennial crop might break bud too early and then it might be susceptible to a spring frost or again if it's a perennial crop it may need a certain amount of cold temperature in the winter and those cold temperatures may not be available to break dormancy which is a a component of the life cycle of perennial crops. So these are some of the things that will make it difficult for certain crops to continue to be grown in California. Um, whether or not the weather is erratic enough to prevent the, the growth of annual crops, um, that I, I'm not sure anybody is really aware of. But I think there will be a need for other places, other such as British Columbia, to be much more self-sufficient in, in food production. By 2050, our fertilization and irrigation methods are much more targeted and much more efficient, and as much as possible... It's geared towards being carbon neutral. Right now, in 2017, farms are already integrating this kind of precision farming technology to cut down on waste. Everything from how you irrigate a crop to how often you till a field has an effect on a farm's carbon footprint. Because it's not just the emissions that go into bringing that food to market, it's also the emissions produced by the food itself. For example, Cattle require so much more land, water, and fertilizer than other livestock. One study estimates it produces four times the amount of greenhouse gases as livestock like pork and chicken. Not to mention they produce a shocking amount of methane. So are we all vegetarians in 2050? No, but people are shifting what they choose to eat, partly because of prices. Ariadne and her family only eat meat a few times a month. Vegetarian diets are more popular than ever by mid-century. And 30 years isn't enough for the majority of Canadians to kick our love affair with meat. But it has been enough for us to fall in love with a new kind of beef. This is a technology which is a sustainable um, alternative to a problem. The world's first test tube burger has just been fried up and served in London. And this can be an ethical and environmentally friendly way to produce meat. The first test tube burger was fried up at a London press conference in 2013. By 2025, cultured meat was on a grocery store shelf. And by 2050, it doesn't feel like that big of a deal. As the price of beef continues to rise with pressures on feed crops and land use, cultured meat becomes a regular part of many Canadians' diets, the same way tofu went from a health store fine to being a supermarket staple. This is just one way technology will affect what we eat in 2050. Vertical farming, enhanced micro-forecasts, genome editing, all technologies that sound utopian but have become essentials as we try to find ways to feed the world's population, which has swelled to 9.7 billion people. But one protein source is definitely more rare by mid-century. Pacific salmon. Vanessa Mink-Martin recently completed her master's at UBC on the ecology and conservation of Pacific salmon. She's in her late 20s now, and with any luck, she'll still be working as a fisheries biologist in 2050. You've probably heard that warm waters are bad for salmon, 
but why exactly? A big part of that is just the fact that a fish's metabolism is totally driven by the water temperature that it's in. So at warmer temperatures, the metabolic rate is faster, which means fish need more oxygen and more energy to survive. For Pacific salmon, they don't actually eat when they're in fresh water as adults. So they feed in the ocean, they store a lot of fat, and then the entire migration is just conducted using those fat stores. So when water temperature is warmer, fish are actually using up those fat stores more quickly. And for some fish, if they are in warm temperature long enough, they might just deplete all of their energy reserves and not make it to spawning grounds. So that's a big challenge with high temperature. In addition, if the temperature is high enough, it can cause fish to, to die immediately. There's sort of a lethal temperature um, that will just kill fish immediately. Um, and these temperatures for salmon could be something around 22 degrees. But at even, even at temperatures that are lower than that, when a fish is swimming, it's, it's much harder for that fish to maintain that effort. It's kind of like if we were to go out and you know, sprint around a track, it's easier for us to do that at maybe 15 degrees. At 20 degrees, maybe we're a little hotter and it's gonna take a little bit longer for us to recover from that effort. So if you think about these Pacific salmon, they're swimming upstream against the flow of the river. That's pretty hard work. And as temperature increases, it's a lot harder for fish to sustain the same speed of swimming and also they have to take opportunities basically to take breaks and recover because as they're swimming at high temperatures their body's producing lactic acid which they have to break down in order to continue swimming so as temperature increases it takes more energy it takes more oxygen and it also just takes longer because fish have to stop and take breaks to kind of recover in her research, Vanessa found that after a difficult journey through warm water, Sakai and the Fraser like to recover in water closer to 10 degrees, several degrees colder than what they swim best in. I'm sure you can see where we're going with this. The coldest fresh water that feeds into these waterways comes from glaciers. And as we heard in the last episode, by 2050, our glaciers are almost gone. Without that ice-cold water feeding the streams, there won't be many options for Sakai hoping to cool down. They're such an incredible, iconic animal, and to witness that migration is really, it's really incredible. But it's like, as I'm getting to know them better, I'm also learning about all of the risks and all of the threats to that migration. And it's, it's really scary to think that, you know, they, some of those populations might not be around for, you know, decades into the future. Um, because I think we're seeing predictions for how the Fraser River is going to warm, the number of days that exceed that sort of critical temperature threshold are just increasing. And it's like if we see an increase of only one degree Celsius in average summer temperatures over the next hundred years, that's going to triple the number of days where fish are experiencing temperatures that are above the critical limit, so 19 degrees. So even a very small increase of temperature could dramatically affect the number of fish that are dying in the river on the way to spawning grounds. You know, there's a lot of factors that do affect survival. It's possible that they won't be around in 2050. This is something I've been thinking about a little bit, and I don't know, this might be too, like, polarizing. <laughs> but I think each year, there, there are many people in British Columbia that are very... 
um, that rely on the fishery or even just look forward to the fishery each summer. And I think each year that the water temperatures are warm and the fishery is closed, it can seem like just another year, just another lost opportunity. But I think the fact that we've seen so many record-breaking high temperature years in the past 10 to 20 years, you know, this is, um, it's a trend. And I think it's important that we don't dismiss it. For most of us, dismissing climate change is what we have been doing. In 2050, while there are challenges and it is uncomfortable, here in BC, we haven't seen the same kind of cataclysmic disasters that face other parts of the world. Deserts expanding, widespread famine, or in the case of small Pacific Island nations like the Marshall Islands, being swallowed up by rising seas. And in a lot of ways, that's why we don't change, because the stakes feel less high here, less real. Here's Denise Nielsen again. Things are accelerating more quickly than than we thought, I think. Um, many of the models uh, have projected change that is all, that we expected to happen maybe 20 years from now, but has already happened. And so uh, the, I think there is that possibility of, of, um, of underselling it. But it's always difficult. You don't want to cry wolf either. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a delicate balance uh, between making people aware and making people aware that planning is required for the future and that the future might is not going to be the same as today, but then that's always been the case. <laughs> um, but then there's also the potential for for some adaptation, but also we really need to focus on, on mitigation, reducing greenhouse gases so that, in fact, things don't run away with us. We're fairly fortunate um, in that I think we still have time uh, with our water resources and our, our land resources to make some good decisions. And this comes back again to the planning. We can look to the south, some, somewhat analogous to some of the things that might happen um, for our future. Um, but I think if, if, if we're willing to do that planning, um, we still have a land base, we still have water resources, and if we, I think we can make the right decisions. And these are decisions that take a lot of planning. And what those plans look like is so dependent on where you are in the province. Anna Warwick-Sears manages the Okanagan Basin Water Board, a watershed that has to balance huge agricultural demands with an area already prone to drought. She says that when it comes down to it, we need to start at square one. Well, I really am into the back to the basics approach. We need to have, every community needs to have a really robust set of drought plans and understanding how they're going to roll them out. You don't need to activate your drought plan unless there's a drought, but it's really good to have them in place, um, to have really good emergency response planning for the flooding uh, should it occur, you know, doing those things, doing thinking about what infrastructure you need. If there's a community that needs an additional reservoir storage, you know, that takes a long time to put in a new reservoir could take 10 years. It takes a lot of environmental permitting. You have to find the right location. You've got to build all the works. You've got to raise the money to do it. There's, you know, these 
our long-term infrastructure planning processes that they're just kind of nuts and bolts of uh, local government and civic management and so forth. But um, it's really the basics that will make or break you in this kind of a situation. Ultimately, what we do now will shape how well we can adapt to the future. For farmers, adapting to tough conditions has always been part of the story. And back on Westham Island, Lydia Rael isn't giving up. And you know what? What'll be will be, right? I don't know. Like in terms of us being, as us as, as humans, we'll, we really will figure it out. And if this place, if it shows that in 20 years, wow, the water level's rising and we think that... You know, our, our government's not going to raise the, the dikes and maybe we move. It doesn't mean that us as a family can't move into the interior and try farming there. I know I'm going to be a farmer the rest of my life. Yes, I would love it to be on Westham Island because every year you're you know trying to take care of the land better and better each year. And you it's, it's an intimate thing you, you do every year with the soil. And, and so you want to continue that on and you want to, you know, plant a tree and then see it grow and all, and all those types of things. And so it doesn't, it's not easy to walk away, but at the end of the day, if that's what it means, then that's what we'll, we'll do um, and, and, and farm elsewhere. And, and that's, um, this is not a rural lifestyle anymore. We're very close to Vancouver. Ladner's expanding. And so, yeah, it's, for me, it's very different than it, than it used to be. It, it's not as, as rural down here. And so that's something that I struggle with. But, you know, that's not climate change dependent. But it means that if the climate is changing and there's other pressures too that I don't, that, you know, are too much um, to farm down here, then, then pack up and, and move north. That kind of infrastructure we need to protect ourselves, our cities, and our farmland from these extreme weather events isn't really there yet. And like Lydia says, there are lots of other pressures that compound all of this that go beyond climate change. Population booms, labor force issues, the skyrocketing price of land. And unless we start planning for all of this now, we won't be ready in three decades. There isn't an Oscar for greenest city in the world, so no one's going to give us a prize at the end of that time. What we'll have is potentially temperature sensors or, or pollen sensors or water sensors and all sorts of detection aids that can help us make decisions. We can design and build you know, more resilient communities. We could grow more local food on every block. Right? We could harvest water on every block. If British Columbia can't do it, if, you know, if places like Vancouver can't do it, then how can other people do it? That's a question we'll answer in our next episode as we hear about the future of our cities with the realities of climate change. I'm CBC meteorologist Johanna Wagstaff. You can download 2050 Degrees of Change at cbc.ca slash podcasts or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would love it if you would rate it or leave us a review. Meet you next time in our future. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.